Well, it's good to be back. I felt this week that I was going to feel like a guest preacher. We've been uh, gone out in the road the last five Sundays, but seeing your faces makes me feel right at home again. So it's good to, to be back and be able to share with you. Since it's Mother's Day, we're going to be studying the book of Job because most mothers struggle at times with feeling unfairly treated and the undeserved woes come upon them, so we hope that mothers find a little something for this morning. The Austrian psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, uh, spent years in a German concentration camp during World War II, and while he was there, he observed that those people who had a particular uh, reason for hanging on to life, a spouse on the outside that was still alive, uh, an unfinished scientific research project or something like that, clung on to life, whereas those with no particular reason for living succumbed to the squalid conditions of the, of the concentration camp and died. He took that insight with him back into his psychiatric practice after the war and developed his own method of psychotherapy, calling it logotherapy, after the Greek word logos, which means uh, word or reason. And it was his observation that even outside of the concentration camp, those without a particular reason for living uh, would succumb to depression and melancholy, despair, boredom, and frustration. And so he'd try to help people find some reason for living. The problem with the psychotherapy is that it was, uh, uh, didn't bring God into the picture, and any reasons we adopt apart from those with an eternal significance ultimately will fail. We as Christians have the fantastic privilege of having a reason which lasts for all time, a reason which is cosmic in its uh, impact, a purpose which is eternal in its limits. But to understand, to have the peace of mind that comes from uh, living with purpose, we have to understand some basic theological truths and we will find these in the book of Job this morning. So turn with me to the book of Job. Job himself is introduced in the first paragraph of this book. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, uh, 500 female donkeys, two stingrays, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their uh, three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it came about, when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. It's important from the outset that, that the author establishes the fact that Job was a righteous man. Uh, he, was, he feared God. He turned away from evil. He was so pious that when his sons had their feasts, he would rise up early the next morning and offer sacrifices for each of his children just in case 
they had fallen into sin and cursed God in their hearts during their feasting. This is important to establish because one of the major points of the book is to, is to contradict the erroneous theology of Job's three friends and advisors. They say that life is all very simple. It all boils down to a simple reward and punishment scheme. Obey God and you will be rewarded immediately, completely in this life. Disobey God and you'll be punished immediately and completely in this life. Job, you're suffering, therefore you must have sinned. Confess your sin and get it over with. One of the purposes is to, of the book is to show that, that life is more complex and our purpose is more cosmic than the purpose that they imply. The, uh, they imply by their statement that the ultimate for man is to have a life of ease and comfort and material prosperity. Now, many of us as Christians live according to the same theology. We think that God owes it to us to make our lives easy. We pursue personal righteousness to guarantee that God will give us an easy deal in life, to guarantee that we will succeed and be prosperous. And we get mad if things don't work out that way. Well, the problem with this kind of theology is it's untrue and it doesn't fit reality. There are things which are much more important than our temporal comfort and ease. If we cling on to the idea that these things are ultimate, that we're going to be unprepared for life and all the jolts that are going to come our way uh, in this world. So the, the paragraphs that follow explain why it was that Job was suffering. He was a combatant in a spiritual contest between God and Satan, a series of two challenges between these forces over this man Job, battling over what his responses to life and to suffering would be. First one is in chapter 1, the second in chapter 2. In chapter 1, we find the first of these contests. Verses 6 to 12 describe the challenge between God and Satan. Verses 13 to 19 describe the test itself. And then verses 20 to 22 describe Job's response to this test. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? Uh, then Satan answered and the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear the Lord for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Hast thou, uh, thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now the scene begins in chapter 6 as a, a picture in human terms. 
signifying the accountability of all heavenly beings, whether they're angels or fallen angels as Satan, before God. The sons of God apparently are angels. Satan is, uh, in popular theology, is viewed as the king of hell. In the biblical theology, he, he doesn't live in hell at all, but he uh, has access to both heaven and earth. In heaven, he comes before God and accuses God's people. On earth, he misleads and blinds those who uh, are his willing victims to frustrate God's uh, uh, good desires for those people. He won't end up in hell to the very end of time when he himself is thrown into the lake of fire for his own eternal punishment. He comes before God, and notice that, that God is the one who issues the first challenge. Have you considered my servant Job, God says to Satan? He's upright. He's a man I can be proud of. By his responses to life, he honors me and brings me great glory. But Satan counter-challenges to God and says, Sure, God, of course he worships you. Of course he honors you. You make everything easy. But you give him some trouble. And you'll see what he's really like. You take away that protective hedge around him. Or if we were to modernize this, this force field around him. You take this away and he'll curse you to your face. Well, God accepts the challenge. So we see the test that follows in verses 13 to 19. Now it happened on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in your older brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, how would you have responded to this trial? In one single day, Job lost all of his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants, and ten children. But let's bring this uh, picture of the scene into the modern age. Let's suppose that one day you find that both of your cars have been totaled and you discover that you have uh, forgotten to make your last insurance premium payment. And the company says, says no way, we're not going to pay for it. And then you go to work and you find that there's a termination notice on your desk. And it says, please do not even stay for lunch. You go home and you're trying to figure out what's going on and you get a notice in the mail and you find out that you've invested all of your funds in an uninsured money market account 
and you find out that through some strange, bizarre, gross mismanagement, the whole account you've invested in has gone bankrupt. You're robbed of all your savings. And while you're pondering your situation, a policeman calls and says that your children have been involved in a motorcycle, in a, uh, an automobile wreck, and all of them have died. Now, how would you respond? Would you grow angry at God? Would the words keep going over and over in your mind, it's not fair, it's not fair? And would you end up cursing God and all that's holy? Well, let's look and see what this amazingly righteous man Job did in response to his trial. Verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, it wasn't as if Job hid from reality. He grieved over his losses. They hurt him very deeply to lose all his possessions, and on top of it, all ten of his children. But he fell before God and worshipped. He acknowledged that all material possessions are temporary. You can't take them past the grave anyway. He acknowledged that God was in control of all life. He said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. No, he wasn't the victim of a strange set of mishaps, but he recognized that God was behind what happened, as he's behind everything that happened. But instead of cursing God, he blesses his name. He recognizes that God has the right to do with him as he desires. And in trust, he submits to what God brings his way. He sees that God has done it, but he doesn't blame God. He doesn't charge God with any wrongdoing. In trust, he submits to what God brings his way and accepts it as the lot that God has chosen for him. Victory for God, the end of round one. Chapter two, we find round number two. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him, to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. So the Lord said, Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. God was proud of Job at the end of round one. He came to Satan and challenged again. Have you considered my servant Job? You incited me to ruin him, to bring all this suffering upon him without cause. He had nothing to deserve it, absolutely nothing. 
But Job has maintained his integrity. He has been true to me and held up. And I am proud of him. But Satan will not accept defeat. He comes back with a counter challenge again. He says, yes, God, he may have held up under this death. But you give people physical suffering. They'll do anything. Compromise any ideal to avoid it. To protect themselves. You give him some physical suffering and he will curse you, God. You'll see. So God accepts this challenge of Satan as well. Verses 7 to 9 then describe the test, the second test. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. We can see Job had a double test this time around. First, he was inflicted with a terrible disease. He had sore boils from the foot of his head to, from the top of his head to the base of his feet. Uh, many feel it was some form of leprosy. In any event, he had no medicine to cure himself. He had no balm, no anesthetic to uh, ease his pain. He simply went to the garbage heap, sat in the ashes to symbolize the grief over his situation, scraped himself with a piece of broken pottery. And then, to make matters worse, his wife came to him, ridiculed his integrity, do you still hold on to your integrity, she says. And she says, I've got an easy solution. Just commit suicide. Curse God, he'll zap you and it'll all be over with. What a pity when those who are closest to us are our worst enemies. She was supposed to be his helper. We as spouses in particular are supposed to help, encourage, and support one another. And yet what does she do? She entices him to rebel against God. She feeds his self-pity and his bitterness. And yet Job resists, as we'll see in verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job rebuked his wife, and then he said to her, I am going to maintain my integrity. I'm going to... Hang in there with God. Are we going to be so petty, so immature and childish that we will gladly accept the good things from him? And yet when he sends adversity, we gripe and complain. He said, no, I'm going to entrust, submit to what he has brought my way. And at least to this point in the book, he brought honor to God by his responses. And God was the victor in these challenges. Now, what does all this have to do with our finding purpose in life? Well, many of us are bewildered and perplexed as we face life. Things just don't seem to go right. It's as if we were on a football team and our opponents, and half of our opponents were invisible and we never figured it out. We execute a, a beautiful play, and a, a gaping hole opens up in the line, our star runner is about to run through to score yards and yards, and wham! He's tackled from nowhere by nobody behind the line of scrimmage. 
The quarterback drops back for a pass and throws a 50-yard bomb to the star receiver. And he's out in the clear. Nobody around him. Then all of a sudden the ball is batted down, but nobody's there. We're confused. We're, we're bewildered. We're gun-shy because things just don't seem to go right. Well, things are much that way for us many times. If we don't understand the invisible realities that surround this visible world, we'll be equally confused. So it's important that we understand these invisible things. And these chapters in the book of Job tell us two basic theological truths that we need to know to understand life. One is that we are participants in a daily spiritual battle between God and Satan. Number two, our purpose in this battle, and indeed our purpose in life, is to bring honor to God, our Master. Life is a battle. And if we don't arm ourselves with the proper mentality each day, then we're going to be dooming ourselves to failure. Each day, God comes before Satan with his challenge. Those people are not going to worship you just because of who you are. They'll only worship you if things are good. They only condescend to bow before you because of what they can get out of you. But you give them some trouble, God, and you'll see what those people are really made of. Now, how does God's cha- or Satan's challenge uh, come to you? What form does it take with you? Each of us is unique. We all have our own set of, sets of weaknesses and vulnerable spots. Maybe that God says... Uh, Satan says, God, Bill's a real workaholic. He's got to be busy. He's got to have constant activity. He thrives on achievement and, and success, accomplishing projects. So if you let me give him a period of inactivity and frustrate his projects so that they fall apart, and maybe get his wife to entice him to go on a long vacation where all he, all he does is sit on the beach, he'll go crazy. And he'll curse you to your face, God. Or take Linda. She has to have everything in order. She's, she's desperately dependent upon security. Every day starts out with a to-do list. And everything is strictly and rigidly scheduled. Let me throw a little chaos into her life and make all of her plans tentative and uncertain. And pretty soon she'll become frazzled and fall apart she won't be able to stand it and she'll curse you, God. Or take uh, uh, Bob and Mary. Their marriage is very important to them. They depend upon the benefits of that marriage. But you let me throw a few uh, monkey wrenches in the work. Let me uh, mess up their communication, present some communication conflicts and misunderstandings and a little bit of sexual frustration. You'll see what they're made of. They won't be able to stand it. They'll compromise any principle to get what they feel they need. Or take that petty, cold community church. They think that they're so special, God, but you let me frustrate their building program. Make it drag on and on. And then dry up the source of money that they're dependent upon. And, and then on top of that, let's throw in some misunderstandings between people, some communication gaps, and you'll see what they're like. They'll be filled with griping, complaining at one another and at you. Satan has his challenges. 
With you, it may be just like Job. Let me take away their money, their children, their health, or it may take one of these other forms. He's very creative. has a number of them. The battle is there every day before us. And notice that we see from these chapters that the battle is really part of God's plan. It's not something that just happens because Satan happens to win out. The Bible does not present God and Satan as two co-equal forces, as in Zoroastrianism or some other religions. God is the sovereign Lord of everything. Satan must come before God and ask permission before he can do anything bad to Job. God is really even the one that initiates these challenges. He comes to Job and says, he comes to Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? He eggs Satan on and begins the battle. If God had considered or thought that our temporal comfort and ease, the material prosperity were the greatest goods that could come to man, then when Satan challenged God back, God would say, no way, Satan. You're not going to touch Job. He's been righteous and upright. I'm going to give him the very best there is, which is an easy life. God knows that there are greater things in life. There are more important issues than how comfortable our circumstances are. Let me read to you a couple of verses from the book of Judges, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We see something of the reason for, for God's desiring a battle. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. It's not that God is a warmonger, bloodthirsty God who dislikes fighting. But God wanted the ancient Israelites of old to have war from generation to generation that they might learn to trust in him. He was the key to their victory in any battle. If things are going too easy, then we become self-reliant. We become self-dependent. We fail to trust in Him. But as we're confronted with difficult situations and we're driven back to Him so that we must depend upon God, furthermore, as we see Him work out victories in life, then we're led to praise God as the ancient Israelites did as they saw God do fantastic miracles in their behalf in some of their battles. God's not interested in having greenhouse Christians who can only thrive in a protected environment under controlled circumstances. God wants Christians who are mature, who are tough. And so he places us in the battle because he knows that our own spiritual growth are learning to, to walk in faith and depend upon Him and find His strength in the midst of difficulty is much more important than how easy and comfortable life can be for us. So we see that the first principle that we see in these chapters is that we are involved in a battle, a spiritual battle between God and Satan, battling it out over us. The second thing we see is that this battle performs the backdrop for our purpose in life. 
Our purpose is to bring honor to God in the midst of the battle. Our ultimate purpose in life is to do this. The biggest issue that comes our way every day is whether we are going to be petty creatures who live for our selfishness or whether we're going to maintain our integrity before God and bring him honor in the midst of life's difficulties that day. And we are tempted and enticed in all fronts to think that our material prosperity is the most important thing. And we get bent out of shape when things don't go right. We lose all of our savings or our job or our car falls apart. But we must be, uh, our minds need to be redirected so that we see things from God's perspective. And we know that, that our own growth, our own uh, living for his glory in the midst of this battle is much more important. We as Americans tend to be pragmatists. We have our to-do list and we don't feel like a day has been worthwhile unless we've completed X number of projects. And yet God knows that there are things that are much more important than whether or not we fulfill our daily schedule or weekly list of projects much more important that we win this spiritual battle. As Christians, we can spiritualize our pragmatism. And we start thinking that the most important thing is having a successful Christian program, whether it's the church as a whole or our building program or our home Bible study or Sunday school class or whatever. And we think that's the most important thing. As I've been reading and studying over the passages for the past few weeks, I've I thought about a pastor friend of mine who's been uh, undergoing some struggles in his church because uh, he's been the victim of misunderstanding and even some, some uh, slander. Uh, and I put myself in his shoes and thought, well, if I were there, I would be frustrated that my ministry projects and goals were not able to be fulfilled because all this time was eaten up by uh, uh, putting out fires rather than working with training and discipling people. And as I prayed for him during this, I prayed that he might remember the principles in these two chapters of Job and know that the most important thing is not how successful his programs are. The most important thing is whether he is able to maintain his integrity, submit to what God has brought along, and honor God in the midst of the battle. What a comforting thought this is, that this is our highest goal in life. We can do this no matter what our circumstances. You might not be very gifted. You might not be able to accomplish very much that's visible to other people in either worldly terms or spiritual terms. And yet you can do the most important thing there is to do on earth. You may be an invalid in a bed for months or years and be tempted to think, I'm worthless. I can't do anything. People have to wait on me. And yet as you realize that the big battle is whether or not you remain true to God under those circumstances, then you can have the significance restored to your life knowing that you can do that which is most important. Namely, submit to those circumstances, accept the adversity that comes from God's hand. Remain true to Him as Job did under these trials. Young mothers are often frustrated with the and struggle with a sense of uh, accepting themselves because of uh, having to spend so much time in childcare. When Holly and I were in seminary, we knew a, uh, 
wife of a seminarian who, after having her first baby, went into the doctor for a postnatal checkup. And he said, well, you're pregnant. She said, I'm sorry, doctor. She's very patient, you know. I'm sorry, but I'm the one who just had the baby. He said, well, I'm sorry, but you're going to have another baby. Well, he proved to be wrong. She had two more. <laughs> Three babies within 11 months. And if you know anything about little kids, you know all she could do was to try to keep her head above the piles of dishes and dirty clothes. She could do nothing else. No church work, no using her gifts, no teaching Bible studies and all the things that she was highly gifted for. And yet, what a comfort if you're caught in those kinds of circumstances to know that you can still do the thing which is most important in all of the universe to do, to bring glory to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I like a contest. I like a challenge. And it's comforting to me to know that, that no matter how trivial the chores or the activities I might be involved in seem, that my life is significant that I'm involved in a challenge every day with the opportunity to bring honor to my God or the opportunity to give the devil cause to laugh in God's face. Now, what does it mean to bring honor to God in the midst of the battle? We look in chapter 2 again, and one phrase is repeated twice, which I think uh, sums it quite well. In verse 3, Job is said to hold fast his integrity. And in verse 9, the words repeated again. He held fast his integrity. Job was a righteous man when things were going well, when things were easy. He was upright. He feared God. He turned from evil. He was so pious. He, he sacrificed for his sons just in case they had done something wrong. And when the pressure came on him, he held fast his integrity. When I'm experiencing difficulties, I don't know about you, but I have the temptation to indulge myself. Uh, if things are going wrong, I think I deserve a break. You know, it may just be a little gluttony. Stop by the Circle K and load up to, to drown my sorrows. But we're tempted in all sorts of things to indulge, to drown our sorrows in drunkenness or, or uh, immorality or in, in bitterness or in self-pity. Job was tempted with all these. And yet when the pressures came, he held fast his integrity. He didn't submit to the, to the natural desire to give up on God and worry only about himself. Furthermore, he trustingly submitted himself to the situation. He didn't gripe and complain. He didn't grow bitter over what had taken place. He didn't charge God with wrongdoing for what had happened. He held fast and maintained his integrity. Now, each of us has the potential of living lives with great significance. Actually, we do live lives with great significance. We have the potential of knowing that and sensing that each day as we put these truths in the book of Job firmly into our minds and we realize that each day is going to be a battle. There's, there are going to be challenges unique to that day and to me and to you. And we have the opportunity of fulfilling our purpose by holding true and, and bringing honor to God in the midst of that battle. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth that you give us in Scripture that liberates us 
We are victims, Lord, to discouragement, to self-pity, to feeling sorry for ourselves at times because our lives don't seem to count or nobody appreciates us or all of our plans seem to fail and fall apart. Lord, help us to hang on to these truths that we might know that our lives have tremendous significance. Lord, encourage us that we might hang tough and by Your power hold fast to our integrity under pressures and frustrations and seek to continue to honor You whether good or adversity comes our way. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen.